Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. So a husband and wife were driving through Louisiana. As they approached Nachitoches, they started arguing about the pronunciation of the town. They argued back and forth, then they stopped for lunch. At the counter, the husband asked the waitress, before we order, could you please settle an argument for us? Would you please pronounce where we are very slowly and clearly? So she leaned over the counter and said, Burger King. Speaking of husbands and wives, you know, my wife knows all my faults. She knows all my issues. She knows all my flaws. And still, if you can believe it, she wants to be with me. I know. I was as surprised as you are. Even if we're in a place we don't agree on how to pronounce, even if we're arguing about uh, nachitoches, right? Uh, We want to be together, at least, you know, most of the time. And that's what happens with a relationship of intimacy. If you have a spouse or a roommate, you know if they snore. You know if they sleepwalk, you know if they double dip, right? That's when you dip a chip and then you go back, right? And if you're married, it's it's probably not so bad unless one of you is sick, but uh but yeah, you know all their all their habits. And so it is in a relationship where you share a space. So this got me thinking, does God want to be with us? I mean, if my wife knows all my stuff, then Kalva Homer, how much more, right? God knows all my flaws. He knows all my issues, even more than Sonia. Sometimes we wonder about these things, right? Does God really want to be with us? We struggle with wondering if God likes us, if our sins, if he can overcome that by his, by his love for us and still want to be in our presence. And if there is a good reason, right, then why, right? Why does he want to be with us? What is that reason? And how can we carry this reason with us to encourage us? And uh, if we are encouraged, how can we position ourselves to welcome God's presence in our lives? So this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but beloved, God does long to be with us despite our flaws, despite our sins. And the record of scripture shows this. When we ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and rebelled against God, this is the, these are the final verses in that episode in Genesis 3. Uh, this is in 23 and 24. Adonai Elohim sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, and he expelled the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he had... Keruvim, right? Sometimes translated cherubs, dwell along with the whirling sword of flame to guard the way 
back to the tree of life. All right. Notice the word keruvim, right? Notice that word. These are, what are these? These are angelic beings, which are guarding the way back to the presence of God. Sometimes it's translated cherub, but you know, these aren't like, uh, the chubby babies that you see depicted in art, but these are majestic heavenly beings that are actually kind of awe-inspiring. And you get a picture of it if you've seen a, a picture of what we're going to talk about next. No spoiler alerts this time. So is this the final word? We're kicked out of the Garden of Eden and that's it? That's it? God is not going to be with us anymore? Are we exiled from God's presence forever? Well, the very next time, the very next time we see the word keruvim show up again, it's in this week's Parsha. And what is it? This is what it is. This is from Exodus 25, starting in verse 17. Then you are to make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one cubit and a half wide, and also make two keruvim of gold from hammered work at the two ends of the atonement cover. This is describing the tabernacle, the very center, the holy of holies in the tabernacle where God is going to dwell. So the same keruvim are to be placed over the atonement cover, which is the throne of God in the tabernacle, so that Moses and Israel can meet with God. This is a hyperlink because it's the very next time the word occurs. So we're supposed to think this word, keruvim, and think back, think back to the garden when we were exiled. And it signals that God has made a way for us to come back into his presence. Does that make sense? Because we were exiled from the garden and now he's saying, I I'm going to build, I want you to build this tabernacle and build the caravim that were there because I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to meet with you through, through Moses, through the high priest. The way back to the presence of God in the tabernacle is once again signaled by the presence of the caravim, by this, this Hebrew word. And that's because God provides a way through atonement to be present with his people, even after we're kicked out. He's always reaching out. He's always longing to be with us. A few verses before, still in this week's Parsha, the purpose of the tabernacle is explained and affirmed. This is what it says, and let's read it together. Have them make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. What do you notice about it? It doesn't say so that I can dwell in it, right? That's what the rabbis noticed. It doesn't say so that have them build a sanctuary so I can dwell in that sanctuary. It says so that I can dwell among them, so I can dwell in Israel, right? So I can be with them. The Hebrew words are also helpful here. So the word for sanctuary is mikdash, mikdash. And the root of that is Kadosh, and we sang that a lot this morning, right? Make me kadosh, make me holy, right? And notice that the Torah doesn't use the word for um, for tabernacle here. It uses the word for sanctuary because it's about holiness. And, and then the, the word for so that I may dwell is shachanti. And that comes from shachan or shochen, which means dwell. And if you have you heard this word shochen before? Yeah, we do it in our liturgy, right? Shochenad marom v'kadoshemo. He who dwells forever, exalted and holy is his name. There you got both both roots that we're talking about. 
Also, shochen gives us the word shechinah. Have you heard this word before? Raise your hand if you heard shechinah, right? What is that? That's the presence, the dwelling, the dwelling of God, the abiding presence of God. So all of this is 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 wrapped up in this verse, right? And uh, it's about God dwelling with us, God dwelling in us, and uh, in in Israel, not in the in not just in the tabernacle itself. In fact, we could say that the entire narrative of the scriptures uh, are God seeking to be among his people, to be with us, despite our very real problems and very real sins. Another example, I think a really great example would be Yeshua himself, right? This is God with us. This is Emmanuel. But who is he intimate with? Who is he close to? He was close to those that were unclean. Right. Think of the woman with the issue of blood. Right. In the in the in the, according to the Levitical code, you know, she was unclean. Right. And that's how that's how uh, the the Jews of the day would have seen her. But he was close to those. Right. He was close to those that were hurting. He was close to those that were excluded. And even though he was called to the lost sheep of Israel, he has still reached out to Gentiles here and there to show the compassion of God to the nations, especially to teach that to his students who were kind of only only Israel's sort of mindset. And he wanted to get them to say, no, it's about not just for Israel, but about being a light to the nations. And so we see from the character of Yeshua from the Gospels that God wants to be with us. Amen. And uh, the next major sign of this idea, I would say, would be the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, which was sent to direct us and guide us in all things. And uh, the good thing about the, the Ruach is that it, uh, it can be everywhere, whereas Yeshua, during his ministry, could only be in one place. Speaking of the Spirit as a helper or comforter, Yeshua puts it like this. This is in one of his final speeches in uh, the Gospel of John before being executed on the tree. He says this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the com- the helper, <clears throat> the helper or comforter here is the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit reminds us that we, we are the dwelling place of God, right? The scripture says our body is a temple of the living God, right? Our body is a tabernacle. And also the community of faith, right? We in the plural, right, are the dwelling place of God, right? And God wants to dwell in the community of faith, In Song of Songs, which is a love poem in the Bible, this longing is seen as an allegory between God and his people. And uh, this is from Song of Songs 2.8. And uh, let's read it together. And let's try to imagine this is the longing of of the lover, right? The voice of the man I love. I can't hear you guys. You got to do it with me. Otherwise, I feel silly. All right. The voice of the man I love. Here he comes, bounding over mountains, skipping over hills. Right. Can you imagine that kind of love? This man is jumping over mountains as if they were little hills. Right. But why is he doing that? Why is he jumping over mountains? To be with his beloved. That is the love of intimacy and romance. 
Aren't there popular songs which say the same thing, right? We, we know this, right? Let's see. Because, uh, baby, there ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no river wide enough. Ain't no valley low enough to keep me from getting to you. Right? Oh, thank, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I will not quit my, quit my day job, of course. Uh, but the, the point of this is that this is describing God and us, his people, right? There's nothing that's going to get in the way of God being with us. There's an interesting midrash or rabbinic conversation about this verse. Uh, this is from Song of Songs Rabbah. Rabbis say, the voice of my beloved, look, he is coming, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. This points to Moses. When he came and said to Israel, in this month, you will be redeemed. And they said to him, Moses, our rabbi, how shall we be redeemed since all Egypt is soiled with our idolatry? He replied, since he desires your redemption, he does not gaze on your idolatry, but leaping over the mountains. Mountains are nothing but idolatry. As it says, they sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and upon an offer upon the hills. And in this month, you shall be redeemed. So what the Midrash is saying, if you caught it, is the mountains in scripture are often high places where there was idolatry and then where there was sin and worship of other gods. So the rabbis are interpreting this text to show that God's love is so strong that what is he doing? He's leaping over the mountains to be with us, his beloved. His love is so strong that he leaps over the mountains of our sin and idolatry just to be with us. Do you believe that? That's true. That's what those scriptures say. He doesn't trip up over, you know, you can think maybe God gets tripped up over the mountains, right? But does God get tripped up? We might get tripped up, but God doesn't get tripped up, right? He doesn't trip over our sins and mistakes. So great is his compassion on us. For a recent modern example, some of us have heard about uh, a revival at Asbury University in K Kentucky. I wanted to share because I feel it uh, it answers some of the central questions of this sermon. And I, I found a firsthand account from a professor of New Testament there, Suzanne Nicholson. She wrote this for Firebrand Magazine, which she's, a, she's an editor of that. And uh, I've, I've just preserved the original language of words like Jesus and Christ, uh, to, quote, to quote her. This is what she says, quote, what do you do when the streams of living water suddenly burst into a flood? The spiritual outpouring that began, began at Asbury University on February 8th was spontaneous and unexpected. After an ordinary chapter, a number of students felt called to linger and praise God. As students responded, the spirit brought an immense sense of joy and peace. More students came, the spirit remained, and so did the students. Worship has continued ever since, and as a result of social media posts, thousands of Jesus seekers have poured into the small town of Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury is no stranger to revivals. Spontaneous worship has broken out multiple times in the past century, although the 1970 revival is perhaps the most well-known. Ever since, alumni and community members have prayed for God to grace the campus once again with a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. 
The surprise at this latest outpouring is reminiscent of the shock felt by the disciples upon hearing Peter's release from prison in Acts 12, even though they had been praying for this very event. They weren't ready for when it happened. When Rhoda answered the door to discover a freed Peter standing before her, she was so overjoyed that she left poor Peter standing at the gate as she ran back to tell the other disciples. We too were shocked and overjoyed at our unexpected but long hoped for visitation. I wasn't in chapel when the revival started. I had been at a dentist's office with my son. I first heard of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit when a student burst into my introductory New Testament class located underneath the auditorium where the worship was taking place at 5 that afternoon and declared, I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't know if y'all have heard what's happening upstairs. People are still worshiping, even though the chapel finished three hours ago. The Holy Spirit is moving. Come join us. So what does a Bible professor do in such a situation? I was forced to make a split-second decision. Do I believe this student? Is it really the Holy Spirit or just youthful exuberance? Do I cancel class and send students upstairs? Do I continue teaching? I mean, I'm a Bible professor, so I should follow the Spirit. But I am teaching about Jesus in this class, after all. I responded, I'll send them upstairs in about 25 minutes. If this truly were a movement of God, I reasoned, then surely it would be going on at 150. And so I continued to teach about the crucifixion narrative. A few students left in the middle of the lecture to head up to the auditorium, but I wasn't going to argue with the Holy Spirit. As class ended, I reminded students that Christ's great sacrifice is exactly why people are worshiping upstairs, and I encouraged them to head up to the auditorium. As an academic, I tend to be somewhat cynical about emotional displays of spirituality. I've seen enough manipulative emotionalism in churches over the years to be wary. But I also know that the Holy Spirit still moves powerfully among believers today. I confess that I also struggled that first day because I had been carrying some personal burdens, and I was afraid that once God started working on my heart, I would be undone, a weeping puddle on the floor of Hughes Auditorium. So that first day, I went upstairs for just a few minutes to see what God was doing. It certainly appeared that God was moving. The praise was genuine, the prayers unforced. I returned to my office located on the first floor of Hughes directly underneath the auditorium, the drafty windowless room located in a building constructed in 1929 is not the most coveted location on campus. But these last two weeks, I have considered this to be one of the best offices at Asbury. I can hear the joyous singing as well as the applause when worshipers affirm powerful testimonies. There is something palpable about this movement of God. That first day, I could feel joy and peace oozing through my ceiling from upstairs. When I went home that evening, I continued to feel a remarkable spirit of joy and peace. It was so refreshing. As the revival has continued, I often wake in the middle of the night with the music and lyrics of praise flowing through my head. Not my normal nighttime experience. God is working in stages through this revival. I needed God to do work on my own soul first. But after the refreshing came, God called me to pray for others. Then I felt released to do practical things. God's healing grace is meant to show us God's love, but also to empower us for service. I have been moved to see how the staff and faculty here have generously served even on weekends, whether serving as ushers or 
parking lot attendants and cleaning toilets and mopping up the floor of hues. The fruit of the spirit is evidenced in their patience and kindness amid great disruption. In addition, members of the larger Wilmore community, local pastors and church members have stepped up to serve on the prayer teams in many other ways. And uh, Asbury Theological Seminary has opened its chapels for overflow worship, as well as a few local churches. This is the body of Christ working across institutional lines to support a movement of God. How beautiful is the kingdom of God? And this is how she closes. Some have asked how this outpouring of the Holy Spirit came about. How can it be replicated? The simple answer is that it was a spontaneous act of God a beautiful act of grace. It was not manufactured. Asbury University simply had another average, ordinary chapel service, and God chose to move. We have done nothing ourselves to make this happen. But that's not entirely correct. People have been praying for revival for years, some for decades. God delights in these kind of prayers. God responds in his own timing to the cries of his people. But make no mistake, this is not a work. The prayers of the people are a response to what God has done previously. God's grace comes first, and the people respond with prayers for more, and God pours out his grace once again. And uh, this is her final encouragement. These kinds of manifestations of God's presence have continued through the centuries as God regularly revives his people. Now God has chosen in this season to pour forth abundantly his spirit at Asbury University. But this does not mean that God is any less accessible in your home or in your church. Pray for the refreshing spirit of God to bless your community. Be persistent. Wait with longing. Don't give up hope. And don't forget that even as you await the flood, you are trees planted by water. Drink deeply of the spirit who is always present. The flood is no replacement for the daily drinking from the streams of God's goodness. Unquote. I know it's a it's a long quote, um, but I thought it was a very powerful testimony, and I wanted to share it with you. And many of us have heard about what's going on there, and uh, and I thought it was a it was a great update because it's a firsthand account of a professor who was at first skeptical and now sees the move of God and is encouraging us that it doesn't have you don't doesn't mean you have to go there to Kentucky, right? But it means we we can pray here and that God is with us here and that God is faithful. In this testimony, we can see a lot of what it looks like to be in God's presence, but also the kinds of things we can do to cultivate and prepare the way for God to be with us. Now, if we know if we know that God wants to be with us and we are affirmed and is looking past our flaws, how can we cultivate our relationship with God to prepare ourselves to be with him since he longs to be with us? Just remember this simple acronym. Erg. Erg. Yeah. Is that easy to remember? Okay. Thank you, Jason. Uh, U-R-G-H. Erg is the sound we make remembering that God longs to be with us and we long to be with him. Can you say that with me? Erg. And this is what it stands for. Unity. <laughs> uh, there was a, a rogue erg there. Unity, repentance, giving, and humility. The beginning of this week's Parsha sums up uh, some of these ideas pretty well. Adonai spoke to Moses saying, tell the children of Israel to take up an offering for me. For anyone whose heart compels him, you are to take up my offering. 
As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs puts it about the Parsha, it was the fact that it was built out of the gifts of everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Where people give voluntarily to one another and to holy causes, that is where the divine presence rests, unquote. The offering was for the building of the tabernacle, and Israel rallied along this cause uh, to, to give willingly, giving of our resources, not just our money, but our treasures to the congregation, to those in need, and to one another. Giving and unity go together in this week's Parsha, right, as they do in our lives. Notice that the giving led to unity, working for a common cause, united by a vision to follow the Torah and prepare a way for the Lord's presence. Similarly, there was unity of worship at Asbury University. Uh, if you if you read accounts, they were no one was trying to outdo someone else, right? But they were all had a unified vision. And unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that everyone is the same, but it points to distinction and mutual blessing. For example, between Israel and the nations, it means that we are gardening our strengths and we're all building the same thing. Here at Tikvat Israel, we're building a congregation for Yeshua within the Richmond Jewish community, and we are bridging and restoring relationship between Yeshua, the Jewish people, and the nations. We are keeping Yeshua central. We're focused on lifting him up and blessing and serving the wider community and one another. And we see that unity when we see new members that have come and pledged and said, I want to join this vision. I want to join this community and be a part of what this community is doing. And that's a beautiful thing. The presence of God also comes through atonement and repentance, as seen with the atonement cover and the keruvim in the heart of the sanctuary, where God would forgive their sins. The Asbury revival is similarly marked by this. They have folks that are going up and confessing their sins and turning away and admitting admitting their sins to God and to others in the, in the sanctuary that are trustworthy and uh, can support them. And we can do the same, right? We can repent of our sins before God and we can go to someone that we trust and, and, uh, and confess uh, our sins to them that they can support us. Repentance and humility go together. That's the H uh, because we bend the knee to the King of Kings and reverence and we admit our shortcomings. Before I accepted Yeshua way back in college, I was kind of like hemmed and hawed. You know, I sat on the fence for a long time and I knew that Yeshua was calling me, but I, I resisted. One of the one of my issues was that I wanted to get myself ready. Right. If I could get myself ready and clean myself up, then I could go and face Yeshua. But eventually I realized that in coming to him and surrendering that he would clean me up as I repented at his feet. And that process hasn't changed. It's still my process of repentance and coming to him. Finally, we see humility as a key to this process. At Asbury, no one was trying to be in the spotlight or making the revival about them. In fact, they had, you know, famous gospel singers and famous preachers want to come. And they said, you're welcome to come. You can sit in the back and worship the Lord with us. Right. And they kept the, you know, the, just the students um, that were that were leading worshiping God because it wasn't about those, you know, 
uh, well-known people, but it was about making the Lord known. And they kept, and they kept that. Um, and I think that was really good. Humility doesn't mean putting ourselves down, but it means putting ourselves in service of God and putting ourselves in service of others. So I, I don't think any of these erg ideas are natural for us. I think, you know, left to our own devices, we would probably say, Ipsa, what is that? Individuality, pride, selfishness, and arrogance. That's the opposite of erg, right? <laughs> but if we intentionally turn to God and allow him to cultivate these in us, I think we can prepare the way for Hashem to be with us by his grace, because that's what he wants to. So beloved, if we want to cultivate a place for God's presence, just remember, Erg, unity, repentance, giving, and humility. Let's pray. Abba, uh, Father, thank you that you do long to be with us, that you overlook our sins, and you called us to uh, relationship with you, intimacy with you. Help us to cultivate um, a, a space to prepare a way for the Lord, as it says in Malachi, uh, that we can um, already be seeking you and asking for revival, but also repenting and coming clean and turning from our sins and, and, uh, and having a revival just within our own life, Lord, just within our own quiet time, um, that you would revive us and restore us back to you and uh, help us to be, uh, uh, humble, help us to be giving, help us to be repentant and help us to have unity in our community. And in Yeshua's name, we pray. Amen.